podcast if you didn't have a prop oh, I know I know gold. I got it at the uh the costume shop when I was shopping for Halloween stuff I was like oh Ben Chifley better get yourself a pipe oh that's awesome that is so cool and it looks like it could work I don't know I'll have to uh you know check it out later on <laughs> hello there dear listener welcome to the podcast with no name For many years, my work's office was located on Chifley Square in Sydney, and our local watering hole for Friday afternoon, Drinkies, was a little bar we affectionately called the Chif. After some years, Sydney's City Council erected a great big steel statue of Ben Chifley in Chifley Square. The statue portrays Ben Chifley standing fairly relaxed, looking, and with a pipe. It was the statue's installation which prompted me into finding out a little bit more about Ben Chifley, And it turns out that he was a remarkable man, an interesting man, and also an ordinary man, and a man who I'd invite for dinner if I was playing, which past figures would you invite for dinner? So, dear listener, in this episode of the podcast with no name, the captain and I shall be discussing Ben Chifley. Hello there, captain. Morning. How are you going? Oh, I'm fine. It's another morning recording, dear listener, so I'm feeling chipper. We just seem to run out of time, don't we? Well... Too busy sleeping. Yeah, well, this year without any lockdowns, we've got plenty on our plate. So we've resorted to doing some morning recordings just to fit them in. Yeah. I'll give a brief biography of Ben Chifley. This is taken largely from Wikipedia, but I have done other readings and honestly, they all say the same things about his biography. So I'll just run through this so, dear listener, you can see how much this man packed into his life. Joseph Benedict Chifley was born on the 22nd of September 1885 at Bathurst. At age five, he was sent to live with his widowed grandfather and auntie at Lime Kilns, which is north of Bathurst. And it's not even a town, it's a location, even now. Whilst he was up at Lime Kilns, he went to half-time school, which was two days one week and three days the other. And at age 13, he moved back in with his parents and continued going to school for a little while. His first job was in a local department store in Bathurst and he also worked in a tannery. And in 1903, he joined the railways and worked his way up from shop boy to engine cleaner to fireman to engine driver. And then, as now, engine drivers was considered to be a relatively prestigious job. It's a highly skilled job and it was then and it is now. Ben developed a intimate technical understanding of his locomotives and he became a lecturer and an instructor on the trains. During his time on the railway, he became a member of the Locomotive Engineers Association. He never held an executive position. He preferred to remain as an organiser and he developed a reputation for compromise. In 1917, he was one of the local leaders of the Australian General Strike and as a result, he was dismissed from the railways, although he was eventually reinstated in 1925. In 1920, Ben was involved with the formation of the National Union of Australian Federated Union Locomotive Enginemen. 
1924, he appeared as an expert witness during hearings to establish a new federal industrial award for the engineman. When you do that, you have to provide intricate evidence about the ins and outs of every aspect of the particular job you're giving evidence of. Ben Chifley joined the Australian Labor Party at a young age as well. He was involved in both state and federal election campaigns as an organiser. And in 1925, he was chosen as the Labor candidate for the Federal Division of Macquarie and lost. So he had another go in 1928 and was elected. In 1929, he was re-elected. Labor became the government and James Scullin was the Prime Minister. He appointed in 1931 Ben Chifley as the Minister for Defence. During this time, Ben Chifley concentrated on finding savings in his department that could be redirected into unemployment relief, and he opened up military camps for the homeless and distributed surplus military clothing for the homeless. In 1931, he lost his seat, and from 1932 to 1940, he was in the wilderness and had no income and survived on his wife's family's money. In 1938, Ben Chifley and other ALP members in Bathurst joined the Industrial Labor Party, which was a breakaway group. Their aim was to get rid of Jack Lang in New South Wales. In 1939, Jack Lang's dominance was over. There was a unity conference and the ILP and the ALP came back together. In 1935, Joe Lyons' government appointed Ben Chifley as a member of the Royal Commission on Banking and he became an expert on this subject. In 1940, he won back his seat, and in 1941 to 1945, it was the Curtin wartime government which formed after Menzies' first loss as Prime Minister. Curtin appointed Ben Chifley as Treasurer, and Frank Ford was the Deputy PM, but Curtin relied on Ben Chifley the most. And during World War II, Curtin concentrated on the war effort and Ben Chifley looked after domestic policy. He looked after war funding, controlling inflation. He pegged the wages and profits in February 1942 and he transferred surplus personal income to savings and war loans. Ben Chifley as treasurer is claimed by the Australian Dictionary of Biography as the country's greatest treasurer saying that he was fiscally responsible, able to communicate the necessity for a reasonable equality of sacrifice. He was able to manage wartime economy. He financed the war by increased taxation, loans from the Australian public and central banks' credit. And he ensured that Australia did not become burdened with overseas debt. Ben Chifley became Prime Minister after a leadership ballot, which occurred upon Curtin's death in July 1945. Frank Ford was caretaker PM for eight days, but the party room had a ballot and Ben Chifley was elected PM. In the 1946 election, Ben Chifley won 54% of the two-party preferred vote, so that's even before preferences he was in. And he also continued as Treasurer. Ben Chifley is the last Prime Minister to be their own Treasurer. As Except he, for Scott Morrison. Oh, did he do that too? Yeah, well, he signed himself up for everything, didn't he? That's right. That's right. I forgot about that. Poor old Josh had no idea. Yes, that's right. Ben Chifley's government's achievements, they maintained wartime economic controls, which included petrol rationing. Their policies were directed towards better conditions in the workplace, full employment, and an improvement in the equalisation of wealth, income and opportunity. So the summary is fairer pensions, unemployment benefits, sickness benefits, and building houses, lots of houses. 
Ben Chifley's government failed to establish a national health service, but they did succeed in the social services referendum in 1946, which permitted federal legislation over the pharmaceutical benefits and medical and dental services, which paved the way for the PBS, which we operate under today. In 1947, there were specific racial disqualifications removed, other than those referring to Aboriginal Australians. A wife's allowance became payable to de facto wives. And in 1947, they also introduced maternity allowance, child allowance, child endowment and funeral benefits. The Commonwealth Employment Service was created and the Acoustic Laboratories Act was also created. There was the Mental Institutions Benefits Act, the Social Services Consolidation Act, which consolidated various social services benefits, liberalised some existing social service provisions and increased rates of various benefits. In 1948, there was the creation of separate Australian citizenship, as opposed to British, we assume. Do you know anything about that one, Captain? What year was that? 48. 48. Yeah, look. Not, not really. I mean, the white Australia policy was still in, you know, and that didn't come out till 1973. Mm. And so, yeah, it's, a, it's like a contradiction, isn't it? It is, it is. But they, you know, it was like, well, we'll, we'll sort that out for everyone, but not the Aboriginals, which was yeah. just yeah. bizarre. But anyway, Ben Shifley, during his time in government, founded ASIO and reorganised and enlarged the CSIRO. He established the Australian National University, the ANU, established the Commonwealth Education Office, the Commonwealth Reconstruction Training Scheme, and provided ex-servicemen with war gratuity and entitlement to special unemployment allowances, loans, vocational training, and preference in employment for seven years. There was the Dairy Industry Fund, which was created with the purpose of stabilising returns from exports. The government also established in 1946 the Coal Industry Tribunal and the Joint Coal Board, which brought significant gains for miners. Life insurance was regulated. And there was also the Snowy Mountains Scheme, which we'll mention a bit about soon. Trans-Australian Airlines was established. Qantas was nationalised. The Commonwealth Bank of Australia was established as Australia's national bank. From 1948, things started to go a little bit south for Ben Chifley. In 1948, there was the Queensland Railway Strike, where Ben Chifley barred striking workers from being eligible for unemployment benefits. 1949, coal industry strike, which caused unemployment and hardship, and Ben Chifley sent 13,000 troops in to break the strike. The 1949 election came along and the ALP and Ben Chifley lost. And there was a perception by that stage that Ben Chifley and Labor had become increasingly arrogant in office. Ben Chifley did remain in opposition as the leader of the opposition, however. But by this stage, he was in poor health and now aged 64. Labor was still in majority in the Senate, so Labor amendments were often passed. Ben Chifley was described by many as intelligent, dependable, charming, a capable administrator and hardworking. He was slightly reserved, although friendly, and he was dignified. He was a shrewd political campaigner and negotiator. He was cautious and conservative in financial matters and advocated, quote, vigorous self-denial. His personal life he married Elizabeth Mackenzie in 1914, and he and Lizzie, as she was known, had known each other since childhood. They did cause a few ructions within the families, though, because Lizzie was Presbyterian and the Chifleys were Catholic. However, the families eventually reconciled and it was all good. At the time, Ben Chifley was seen as marrying into money, 
And after the wedding, Ben Chifley's father-in-law gave them a house on Busby Street in Bathurst, and they lived there for the rest of their life. They had no children. Mrs Chifley had a serious health problem and throughout her life she developed chronic back pain which restricted her mobility. And they lived mostly separate lives once he went to Canberra or once he went onto the railways because he was driving trains here, there and everywhere and then he went to Canberra. It is widely known, assumed, that Ben Chifley had a long-time extramarital affair with his private secretary, Phyllis Donnelly. And when he was in Canberra, This is another thing which tweaked my interest in Ben Chifley. He never rented a house or bought a house or a unit or something down there. He stayed instead at the Hotel Courageon, which is this beautiful 1920s Art Deco pile, not far from where Parliament House is. It would be about a 10-minute walk, if that. Mm. Um, It'd Mm. only be a 15-walk to the new Parliament House. Yeah. So this is where when you said you were going to do Ben Chifley, I was like, oh, okay, because I have a bit of a family connection with Ben Chifley. So when Ben was Prime Minister and staying at um, Hotel Currajong, my grandmother was his waitress and servant and looked after him. You know, she was assigned to look him, him to look after his rooms and everything. And, yeah, and so that's where I was like, oh, actually, out of all the Prime Minister's that's probably one that I have always sort of piqued my interest in. And so when we were doing this episode, I was like, oh, yeah, I know a little bit about Ben. Yeah, that is so cool. Yeah. Did she yeah. talk about him um, I never actually, I never actually knew my grandmother. She passed away when I was uh, a newborn. Oh. But my auntie also worked there. She worked in the kitchen as, yeah. a, as a young girl. She started working there when she was about 15. But there is a little bit of a newspaper clipping that was in the Canberra Times and it must have been in around 1955 and it was a little sort of token piece saying that, you know, my grandmother left a bouquet of violets on his breakfast table every year of his passing um, because they were his favourite flowers. Isn't that lovely? That is so lovely. so I could imagine when you're describing his character and that, that charmingness that he would have been very, very respectful for the people that he was, you know, there working with him and, and for him and that, yeah, he never took, a, you know, worked at the lodge and he chose to sort of have a, a smaller lifestyle rather than living in this rattling around the big old house. Well, one of the sources I looked at was personal glimpses of the PM in the press. This is a document I picked up on johncurtain.edu.au. And one of the quotes I've pulled out about Ben Chifley says, quote, every morning he did the rounds of the office and spoke to everybody, asking younger members of the staff if they went out or saw their boyfriends the previous night. He was very outgoing and there was a real interest in each person on his staff. So there you go. He would have spoken yeah. to your grandma regularly yeah. he would have known yeah. about her yeah yeah definitely yeah. yeah Chifley was more than kind to his staff he was noted for that mm. despite his workload Chifley was always approachable and never seemed flustered or hurried he was seen as very informal unconventional sort of cove so, yeah, you can see him saying g'day to people, seeing how they are, how are the kids, how's your husband, did he? Yeah, you know. yeah, with a genuine interest in them. And he would remember. Mm. I get the fit mm. from the stuff I read, he would remember. 
yeah. about people, yeah. which is a real skill. Here we go. Here is a quote from Sir Robert Menzies about Chifley. It would have been hard to have a personal quarrel with him, for he had in abundance those human qualities of easy informality, of deep conviction, of quiet humour, and of engaging frankness, which made him, in the old phrase, a man's man. Menzies had a way with words, and you can see he builds a picture of Chifley, even in those few lines of what he was mm. like. Yeah. Um, yeah. They so, were, I mean, they were great mates. Really, you know, and you, you wonder had they not been, you know, on ideologically opposed. <laughs> yeah, but maybe that's that's what, um, and because they were both sort of so astute that that enabled their friendship to be, you know, and their conversations without, you know, ending up in fisticuffs to be so, you know, tangible and, and they actually enjoyed each other's company because. Perhaps they were the same, but they ended up on each side of the party. That perhaps they were the same, but they had to represent their party. But in real life, they were actually potentially the same. Yeah. And I think you see that time and again with leaders of countries. I'm just thinking of you could see Bob Hawke and Malcolm Fraser down the track. They would get together and agree on issues. And, oh. you know, once they were away from politics, they could see each other as people rather than opposition and I think to survive in such a position you have to be able to turn that off turn off the politician and remain a person and this is possibly where politicians do create and maintain friendships once they're past the partisanship of politics you see it with George W Bush and the Obamas are good friends I think it is yeah and yeah They've, they've been through a similar experience. Okay, they've got different ideological stances, but lots of people out there do, and you manage to stay friends and chat to people. And, yeah, you see it time and again, but it's really nice to read the esteem and the respect that one politician has for another, which mm. you can with Menzies, which, and I'm sure we could with if we looked up other ones, but we're talking about Ben Shifley, so that's really nice. Mm. Just to finish off Ben Chifley's biography, on the 13th of June 1951, Ben Chifley suffered a heart attack in his room at the Hotel Currajong. Phyllis Donnelly, his secretary and confidant, was there and called the doctor, but he died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. On that evening, the government was holding a parliamentary ball to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Federation and Sir Robert Menzies was told about Ben Chifley's passing at the ball and made an announcement to everybody so everyone knew at that time. He was buried in Bathurst Cemetery. There we go. That's um, Ben Chifley's biography. There's a lot of things that he did whilst in government which paved the way for the society that we are living in now. I'm thinking about the CES, the Commonwealth Employee Service. I'm thinking about the CSIRO. There's also the Snowy Mountain Scheme, the ANU, establishing a national university. There's the financial changes and the setups that he did with the Banking Act and the Commonwealth Bank Act. Yeah, yes, yeah. The Snowy Mountain Scheme, that in itself, that is a massive thing. And he was also the father, father of the Holden car. I know. Holden so, came off. Dear listener, you cannot see this, but oh. I have this incredible book that I got at Tempe Salvos 
probably about 25 years ago for $5, and it is the commemorative book of the Snowy Mountains and the Snowy Mountain Scheme. And it goes through and shows all about the local people and the area of the time. It's, it's an absolutely beautiful book. But one thing that I, I noticed in the very first section of it, there's a, there's a bit here, it says page two, and it actually talks about the, the heading is the lost tribes of, of the Monaro. And so oh. immediately they go into the First Nations people that lived in the area. <clears throat> and so this book was, you know, Snowy Mountain Scheme was in 1956. And when so was this published? 1956. Wow. And so to, to even acknowledge that in this time, there was some, some sort of change. Somebody said this comes first yeah. back then. So I don't know who published this book, who wrote this book, because it's there's no real reference to that sort of thing. But it, it was for the Council of the Shire of Snowy River and the Snowy Mountains Hydroelectric Authority. But somebody um, collated it and put, you know, edited it. And so I just thought that that was amazing that somebody even then recognised the First Nations people of, of the land where the Snowy Hydro now stands, Isn't as they say, the, the roof of Australia. Isn't that amazing, though, that, it, it, that it's connected something so socially forward as acknowledging First Nations people in this book first mm. up? Mm. Yeah. It's connected to the Snowy Scheme because it was just so socially groundbreaking, leaving aside the engineering and the technological revolution that it brought to this country, mm. that they did that as well. I mean, if if you're unaware, dear listener, if you're not, in Australia, and you have no idea what the Snowy Mountain Scheme is, it was an idea to capture and move water from east to west because Australia's got a great big mountain range that goes from the very north to the very south of it called the Great Dividing Range. On the east side of the Great Dividing Range, all the rivers run east and they run and flow out to the sea. On the west of the Great Dividing Range, all the rivers run west and some of them dry up quite a lot of them dry up during big droughts. So maintaining water flow to towns, maintaining water flow for irrigation for crops and things is a massive problem. So they had the idea of redirecting some, most, of the snow melt in the Snowy Mountains west to create an irrigation area for crops and towns, and they made it happen. And as far back as the 1880s, an idea of what was to become the Snowy Mountain Scheme first emerged where they thought they could drought-proof parts of New South Wales and Victoria by diverting the Snowy, Murray, Murrumbidgee and Tumut rivers. In 1944, a committee was formed to examine the development of the scheme. And in 19, July 1949, when Ben Chifley was Prime Minister, an act was passed to establish a, a statutory authority and start construction of the Snowy Scheme. And on the 17th of October 1949, the Governor-General, Sir William McKell, Prime Minister Ben Chifley and the Snowy Mountains Authority Commissioner William Hudson fired the first blasts of the scheme at Adaminibi. This scheme started in 1949 and it finished in 1974. It was massive. 
It cost $820 million back then. It constructed 16 major dams, 80 kilometres of aqueducts, some through tunnels, and 145 kilometres of interconnected tunnels. As well as diverting water, it is a hydroelectric scheme. So as they move the water around, they're creating electricity for New South Wales and Victoria and the Australian Capital Territory. Socially, the Snowy Mountain Scheme shaped Australia's history. It changed how we are fundamentally. It imported 100,000 people to work on it from 30 different countries. A lot of these people were from Europe, but they were not exclusively from Europe. This started in 1949, and people who were in on opposing sides of World War II less than five years before were working as allies on the scheme, and they just had to let it go, and they did because they had something else to focus on and they got onto it. The workers lived in regional townships and there were 100 temporary camps And after the construction of the Snowy Mountain Scheme, the workers dispersed all over Australia and they changed our social and cultural skyline forever. I mean, even just from restaurants. We now have restaurants the way, what else, Captain? I can't. I'm Food. I always think of food. So once again, I have a personal story to do with the Snowy Hydro. So my my family is actually from Berrydale. And um, and Adamitabi, and so my dad. I mean, it's God's country there. So my dad can remember when they flooded. You know what's now known as Old Adamitabi, and um, you know certainly times when you know Barrenjuk Dam, like Eukenbeam, is very very low. You can still see old parts of cemetery and sort of footings of buildings and stuff. And so my dad was only a young boy when it first started. Yeah, and so that's where I was like, oh, actually, out of all the Prime Ministers, that's probably one that I have always sort of... Snowy Mountain Scheme is just absolutely fascinating. Captain, you were saying that you've got a familial connection and your relatives are from Berrydale and Adamitabi and you can see the ruins of old Adamitabi when there are droughts on and the lakes recede. Yeah, and so what ended up happening is a lot of the the men, so these migrant men from Europe, they ended up settling in Canberra. And so by that time, my dad was the head linesman at the, um, what's now known as ACTU, the ACT Electricity and Water. And so a lot of these men came and because they were, the the immigrants came and the, and the workers that they were still quite isolated that they weren't integrated into the community they they set up their own communities living in these uh, tents and little little working cottages and so once it was over they then had to integrate and a lot of them still couldn't speak English because they were maintained in their own communities up while they were working there and so my dad really welcomed all of that diversity and he actually um, told a lot of the Australian workers off by calling them derogatory names and stuff. And he was like, these people are more skilled than you will ever be and they have brought their families on the other side of the world. So you give them the respect. And he changed the work ethic in ACTU and welcomed all of these people. And so what ended up happening is my dad would be the guest of honour at their children's weddings. So lots of 
Macedonians and wow. um, Eastern Europeans and Italians and all of these different people. My dad was like, he'd come home from weddings with gifts. And I was like, what? What? I didn't understand that an Orthodox wedding or something, you know, because they're massive. And mum would explain to me that dad meant so much to them because of the acceptance because they weren't they were accepted but they were just told to work when they were working in the snowy hydro but they were accepted into the community into Canberra isn't that just lovely it is just wonderful it is just yeah. wonderful and there are so many second generation people out there who are now in their 50s and 60s whose parents worked on the snowy hydro and after the snowy hydro they went to melbourne they went to work in the steelworks down in wollongong and newcastle and their children have had very good lives where they otherwise mm. may have been in an eastern bloc country under communism and oh, absolutely we're just so lucky to have these people come to our country. It's just wonderful. The Snowy Mountain Scheme also had industrial and technological innovations connected to it. One is rock bolting, which is they invented a way of supporting tunnel walls. And if if I am correct, and please, dear listener, if I'm wrong and you know this, please email us and tell me I'm wrong. They stick, send great big long metal sh- poles up into the up into the rock which somehow stabilizes it if it goes drummy i don't quite understand how it works yeah but it's like what they do with concrete now you know it's and like reinforcing it they do it in coal mines they do it mm. yeah but snowy mountain scheme they also had snowcom which was a transistorized computer and it was one of the first dozen or so computers in the world and they were known for their safety practices, one of which was from 1960, if you were in a vehicle connected to the Snowy Mountain Scheme, seatbelt wearing was compulsory. How simple mm, yeah, and wow. how, safe, how safe. So yeah. the Snowy Mountain Scheme is a far, far-reaching enterprise which has affected our whole country. And Ben Shifley was part of the government that got it going and was behind it. And kudos to them and we thank them because we get to eat food from the Murray Irrigation Area. We get to eat food grown out around Wagga and Griffith and all out around that way. It's it's just thanks to yeah, the irrigation got, scheme. They've got plenty of water going on there now. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> they do yeah. have... A surplus of water at the moment, but, um, yeah, the snowy mountain. So you talk about the the sort of all the stuff that Chifley's government did and, you know, moving forward, but, and and while, you know, he is the Prime Minister of Australia, I think the post-war Australia really had, had a plan and wanted to move on. And it's interesting that you said before that when Chifley was Treasurer and Curtin was Prime Minister... Because Curtin really looked after the war effort overseas and then Chifley being the deputy really took care of Australia here. And so I think he was very well uh, versed in what was going on here in Australia, whereas Curtin perhaps was a bit more focused on the war effort. And so I feel like he was sort of being very well primed into the social change. And of course, post-war you had to start building the country again and you had to start establishing all of these things and so all of those things that you talk about ASIO, CSIRO, the ANU are all foundation parts of building the country 
Absolutely. And so it is, incre- it is incredible, but perhaps they were already in the, the pipeline and needed to be done and catching up with the rest of the world. Possibly. I mean, they couldn't just appear out of nowhere, but it, it, it all happened under Ben Chifley's watch. And mm. he made sure that the budgets were such that the country could afford to do it. Mm. Um, you yeah. know, all that stuff costs it, money. Mm. And you were talking about the, the Banking Act, you know, because he grew up and he saw so many of his, you know, the local people in Bathurst get, you know, done over by the banks and not being able to progress because of the banks. So he made sure that the banks had, there was some sort of control and purpose of the banks and they weren't necessarily these massive conglomerates. Yes, he did not have complete success. I'm just looking it up from my notes. He did not have complete success with the financial reforms that he wanted because he went down, there were high court appeals and things, and he went down on those. Um, the nationalisation of the banks. I mean, in 1945, there was the Banking Act and also the Commonwealth Bank Act. This is when Ben Chifley was Prime Minister, which gave the government control over monetary policy and established the Commonwealth Bank of Australia as Australia's national bank. Ben Chifley tried to nationalise the banks, but there was massive opposition from within the press and I take from that public opinion. And during this time, middle-class opinion turned against Labor. It went to the High Court and the High Court found Ben Chifley's legislation about the nationalisation of banks unconstitutional. So we went down on that. That was one of his, that was seemed to be a big failure of his time in government. I don't know a lot about that apart from what I've just read out, but he had a vision about how Australia was to fund stuff. Yeah, well, I know that they didn't want to borrow too much from overseas. And, of course, during the wartime sort of rationings, you know, companies were taxed on any profit and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So all of a sudden war's over, rationing is over, and, you know, companies and people are starting to make money again, whereas he's maybe still just like, no, it's for the people. We need to make sure that we all thrive, you know, one for all type feeling yeah. but it yeah it didn't happen no no it didn't happen but uh, it, it was fairly enlightened in social services though his government and ben shifley oh, absolutely my you mum know. was telling me she remembers all of her sisters getting the child in endowment payments and all of that stuff you know my mother's sisters were having children in the you know late 40s and yeah, they were they were getting all of that. One of them was unfortunately a widow at a very young age, oh, and so lady. they they got the the widow's payment, and you know, so all of that stuff is yeah, it it is it's what we know now, isn't it? It is. It's what we know now, and it's the social safety net is one of the things Australia is famous for, mm. like the Mental Institutions Benefits Act. In return for free treatment, the states were paid a benefit equal to the charges on the relatives of the mental hospital patients. Something as simple as that. So you could know that if you had a mentally ill relative that needed institutional care, you weren't going to be financially ruined by getting that Mm. care for that person. The Social Services Consolidation Act, well, that just brings it all together. That's no big deal. But, yeah, the child endowment. I can remember my mum saving her child endowment to buy, I think it was a fridge or a freezer Mm. or something. When we were young, I can remember yeah. her saying, I've saved my child endowment for this. 
Yeah. It's put yeah. aside for whatever. And, you know, I think she's still, it's either the clothes dryer or the chest freezer and she's still using both of them today. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> we still have the beer fridge up the back. Our parents' house is an old General Electric fridge. It's the perfect beer fridge. I mean, it's basically a freezer, but it doesn't freeze things. It's perfect. the coldest fridge. I know. It's amazing. And it just perfect. never dies. It perfect. must be, I don't even know how old it must be. 60 years? I don't know. Yeah, they were. It's amazing. They were built to last. They really were. Funeral benefits could be paid in respect of claimants for aged or invalid pensions who would have qualified had they lived. Maternity allowance. Prepayment of maternity allowance of £5, which was a significant amount of money back in the 1940s, could be made up to four weeks before the expected date of the birth of the child. So the poor ladies who were pregnant, instead of having to work right up until their confinement, they could rest. Yeah, let me see what £5 in, let's just say, 1945 Australia While the captain does that, I'll just the maternity benefits were extended to mothers classed as aliens but who had been living in Australia for 12 months. So that alone would help the ladies who were the wives and of the people working on the Snowy Hydro, if nothing else, because a lot of them lived yeah. away from the men working on the hydro. They would go and work in temporary towns and camps and the ladies would be back in Cooma or other places so that would help them. Have you got the answer? So, it, yeah, it's not that much. It's oh. probably about $80. <laughs> oh, it's better than nothing. I know, I know. Yeah. But, um, $80 went time, a lot five, further back then. So, yeah, five pounds back then is a lot of money. Yeah, it went a long definitely. way. I suppose today you just buy potatoes and apples and <laughs> <laughs> it keeps you going. The National Health Service. Ben Chifley did not succeed in establishing a national health service. He was looking to the British NHS when he was looking to establish this. But he he was successful in making arrangements with the states to upgrade the quality and availability of hospital treatment. Look, he, mm. he didn't get a complete win on that one, but he did his best. Didn't um, he do a lot for the Bathurst Hospital? He um, he really fixed everything up there, and because he was on the know. board of, I think he was on the board of the the hospital, and he made sure that you know he brought in new new equipment and tidied it all up and got extra lights and electricity and made um, you know the wages and working conditions for the nurses there. I'm pretty sure that that happened. The Bathurst yeah. Hospital. I, I don't know about that, Captain. Um, I'll defer to your knowledge then mm. on that one. Yeah, when when you read through Ben Shifley's biography, you can see him bringing Australia out of another age and into a new one. Mm. And I mean, I'm I'm not silly enough to know that he did this by himself, but he was the man at the helm. He was the guy who ultimately said yay or nay to these reforms mm. going through. I mean, leaving aside the government general signing off on them. He was visionary enough to do this. He had a social conscience. You can see that through all the social services that he introduced and reformed during that time. He knew Australia needed to be smart. He knew we were heading into a technological age. So there you see the CSIRO, there you see the ANU, and there's a universities commission and he expands the university system throughout Australia as well. 
you can see him setting Australia up for the next 50 years. And this is part of the reason that Ben Chifley has tweaked my interest. Plus just the idea of a prime minister not living in a house or a unit or something and staying at a hotel and walking to work Mm. every day and just, yeah, I I just loved it. And I must say I've stayed at the Hotel Courageonk. Yes. There was an exhibition a few years ago at the art gallery. It was by Cartier and it was beautiful, beautiful pieces of jewellery that they've created. Tiaras perhaps. And there were one or two or several or hundreds of tiaras. This old grey mare went down and had a look at it. And I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stay at the Hotel Courageong so I can say that I've stayed at the same hotel that Ben Chifley has. So yeah. I did. Well, I don't know when it was, but somebody purchased the Hotel Courageong and sort of developed it and redid it because I can recall that it was almost, you know, like a slum back in the 80s or something. I don't know. I don't know. I can't confirm that, but it sounds familiar that, you know, somebody purchased it and restored it and made it the historical aspect of, um, you know, because a lot of the politicians stayed there when they, you know, used to come to Canberra. All right. Uh, Well, it was this exhibition was three or four years, probably four years ago now, and the hotel clearly has been renovated and restored. And it is beautiful just beautiful I stayed in one of the older wings and it was just it was really lovely mm. and the room it wasn't this little bolt hole it was a lovely even for just about their cheapest room they had it was still a really good size and lovely and I did the Ben Chifley thing I left the car at the hotel and walked over to <laughs> the art gallery and walked yeah, back yeah. it was wonderful yeah. it, was just, it is I mean it is only all the stones throw from there yeah, and there is just nothing like walking around the Parliamentary Circle Triangle in oh. Canberra in autumn. It's just yeah. beautiful. beautiful. Just beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. Look, Ben Chifley, his legacy was all this stuff, was shaping Australia. I don't know if he knew he was shaping Australia. I think he probably wasn't thinking that far ahead. Maybe he was just mm. wanting to he do He didn't have the ro- chance to think that that well, far ahead and perhaps see his legacy, unfortunately, yeah, know, because he, he only died two years after being out. It's, yes, true, you know. true. I, I think he just was trying to do the right thing by as many people as mm. he could. His legacy, he's appeared on a stamp. There was an argument in the 1980s about calling the University of Western Sydney Chifley University, but the powers that be went with the name University of Western Sydney. Locomotive 5112, which was driven by Ben Chifley, has been preserved on a plinth at the eastern end of Bathurst Railway Station. Next time I drive through that area, I'm going to swing past and have a look. But um, Mr Safety assures me that it's there and he's seen it Many, many times. The 1971, the Commonwealth Railways named diesel locomotive NJ1 that was assembled at Kelso, which is right beside Bathurst, Ben Chifley. And I looked up places named after Ben Chifley. We have the suburb of Chifley in Canberra, the suburb of Chifley in Sydney. There's a federal division of Chifley in the federal electorates. Ben Shifley's house in Bathurst is listed on the New South Wales State Heritage Register. 
I think it's one of those ones where you just walk through the door and step back in time to the 1940s. <laughs> There's the Chifley Library at the ANU. There's Chifley Tower in Sydney, which was opposite where my work office used to be. There's Chifley Square, ditto. There's Chifley Cave at Janolan Caves, which was previously known as the Left Imperial Cave, but they've renamed it. There are high schools in Western Sydney. There's dorms at Charles Sturt University in Bathurst, named after Chifley. There's the Chifley Research Centre, which is the official think tank of the ALP. And there's the mm. Chifley Dam, which is 11 kilometres upstream of Bathurst. Mm. So, yeah, Ben's got quite a bit yeah. named after him. Well, it's it's interesting you talk about all the different place names. I knew I knew that there's a suburb in Canberra called Chifley. A lot of the suburbs are named after prime ministers there. I met someone the other day that actually lives in Chifley here in Sydney and I was like, where's that? And it's it's sort of over near, Blacktown. it's over like southeast. Is it? I, it's over I have no way. idea. I'll double Is check, it? but yeah. it's over that way. Yeah, I never even Blacktown, knew that Mount it Druitt. existed. But then I was thinking of all of the different suburbs in Canberra that are named after you know, Prime Ministers, you've got Hughes, Curtin, Scullin, Everett, Deacon, Lyons, mm. Ford. And it's interesting that Holt. there isn't a, yes, Holt. Well, I'll get to that. Chifley was almost the very last suburb named after a Prime Minister because there isn't a Menzies in Canberra. I now, think there might Cam- be now, no, isn't it? Well, no, no, oh. because I had to check. I've oh, been right, going to Canberra check. for many years. But, you know, over, over the two different terms, Menzies served for 18 years. He's like the longest-serving Australian Prime Minister and he's not there. And then we skipped a couple of years and then Holt, there's a suburb called Holt. And, of course, he was Prime Minister after Menzies in you know, the late 60s. And then it seemed to have stopped for a little bit and then they went down the more First Nations routes of, of naming mm. suburbs. Yeah. Captain, you are absolutely right. I was wrong about the location of Chifley in Sydney. It is in the southeastern suburbs out near Malabar and Matraville. Yeah, yeah. Never heard of it before. It must be a tiny little place. Um, yeah, but and it's interesting because Menzies still hasn't got a suburb in Canberra, yet there's a, a suburb called Ford and, of course, Mr. Ford, what was his name? Frank Ford, Fred Ford. Frank Ford, yeah. Um, yeah, he was only Prime Minister for six days, yet yeah. he still gets a suburb named after him, whereas Menzies doesn't get So I don't know who makes the names up for Canberra suburbs, but clearly they don't like him. No, I'm Googling Canberra suburbs and I made the mistake of going to Wikipedia on that one. It takes a little bit to, to find. Well, I'm just looking. To see, because we've got, I thought there was a Fraser, but there's not. There's, there's a Fraser. There's Fraser, but it's not Malcolm Fraser. Oh, yes. They have, a... Yeah, but they have the Malcolm Fraser Bridge, which is a new big sort of by road that is out near the airport. So that's involved oh. to Malcolm Fraser. But the Fraser suburb it is named after somebody else. Yeah, yeah. I'm just looking. Because a lot of some suburbs are named after um, governor generals as well, so we've got Isaacs. Yeah, and well, and got... scientists like there's Flory yeah. as well, and Mawson. You know, different, different, yeah, different, different sort of things that way. But yeah. um, oh, they've got O'Malley, yeah. King O'Malley. What did yeah. he do? I remember King his name. Oh, oh, he was something. He was. He I was know. around the time of Federation, wasn't he? Um, yeah, yeah. See, and, and yeah. this is where 
I know all these names, but I don't particularly know who they are. Yeah, yeah, so, I'm the same. I'm the same. Oh, my goodness, there's all these places, such memories. I'm looking at lists of suburb names in Canberra. Yeah, and you're right. Yeah, yeah. there's no um, Menzies. No Menzies. But, and, so, and, yeah, there's more Indigenous names coming through now. Yeah, they, yeah, it's got Warramanga, um, Ngunnawal. Well, Ngunnawal is the um, Indigenous region of, of Canberra. Mm. So Monash University did a report naming, you know, what makes the greatest Australian Prime Minister and they had like a scale of different different things and chiefly came in at number four on oh, that. Who was ahead of him? Yeah. So we had Curtin, Hawker, Deacon and then Chifley. You know, I know nothing about Hawker. I don't know anything about Hawker either. I know mm. a lot about Alfred Deacon, Sir Alfred Deacon, because I went to Alfred Deakin High School. There you go. He was Australia's second Prime Minister. He had a beautiful moustache. He certainly, he did a lot for the founding of Federation and changing it. You know, Sir Edmund Barton was the first Australia's Prime Minister. And so he was Prime Minister, was he Prime Minister two times or three times in and out? Because there was only, you know, a handful of people and they chopped and changed all the time. Yes, they did. Every other week, (laughs) every other week. So, but According to the Monash University's, you know, scale that, you know, they achieved the most. So obviously, once again, changing times of, of federation, you know, all of it. Deacon obviously did a lot. Oh, there you we'll go. have to do another one about that. Yeah. Now, dear listener, I did mention that Ben Shifley was a member of the Labor Party. And in 1949 at the ALP conference, he gave a speech and this part of this speech is still referenced today as the objective of the Australian Labor Party. And I will read that extract to you. Quote, I try to think of the Labor movement not as putting an extra sixpence into somebody's pocket or making somebody Prime Minister or Premier, but as a movement bringing something better to the people, better standards of living, greater happiness to the mass of the people. We have a great objective, the light on the hill, which we aim to reach by working the betterment of mankind, not only here but anywhere we may give a helping hand. If it were not for that, the labour movement would not be worth fighting for. That is a tremendous... It's It's just tremendous, isn't it? And I think, it is the pillar of, uh, you know, with the Labour Party, it should be the pillar of sort of... Society. You know, yeah, exactly. And yeah. now that's known as the light of the hill speech. Yes, the light, light, the light, light, on, on, the the light on the hill speech. Which I mean, it, it. I in reading about Ben Shifley, I mean, I sort of knew about the light on the hill speech, and I, I thought, oh, they're quoting Slim Dusty because he's got a song called "Lights on the Hill," <laughs> which and the lights on the hill, slowly <laughs> blinding me. me. <laughs> Which is about a truck driver yeah, doing long-haul driving who gets... Oh, no, you've got to care for what you Google. The Lights on the Hill okay. song by um, Slim and Dusty is about a long-haul truck driver who has driver's fatigue, gets blinded by another oncoming vehicle and crashes. It's terrible. It's a sad <laughs> song, but I personally think it's his best song. Yeah, the Light on the Hill speech, it's, I think, I'm not overly political, dear listener, but... I think it's safe to say I think the Labor movement at times lost that vision, but, you know, they try and hold on to it. But I also think that other governments, whether Liberal governments, state and federal, have held 
onto aspects of it as well. I don't know that they live by it, but, you know, they we aim to reach by working the betterment of mankind, not only here but anywhere we may give a helping hand. I mean, mm. we've we've just been through two years of lockdowns and things where they've locked us down and provided payments to large parts of the population to keep mm. them financially going and to keep people alive. I mean, we've got to thank mm. the governments of this country for doing that. Absolutely. Absolutely, regardless of what side you're on, that is what you had to do, you know. Absolutely. And we saw around the world that other governments did not take that attitude and they lost thousands upon thousands upon thousands of their fellow citizens. It's a wonderful exemplar of of an ideal where people have tried to live by it. And I'm just so fortunate to live in a country where they do try to live by an ideal. There is um, an amazing speech by Paul Keating given when he's in Parliament and he was referencing the glory days in the 1950s under the Menzies government. Um, If you have a chance, listener, to uh, uh, give it a quick Google and watch it because it is incredible. The Speaker of the House nearly loses his mind. I've never seen the speaker stand up and the whole <laughs> House of Reps was just going crazy and it's one of, you know, I mean, Paul Keating made many, many great speeches but this is, <laughs> it's um, it's very, very good so you should have a look at it. I will. I'll look that up. Mm. Though I did think that a podcast topic could be insults, the insults of Paul Keating. Oh, because he was famous yes. for them. <laughs> oh, I mean, it was just the intellect and wit. I mean, he's almost John Cleese-esque, you know, mm. with the sharpness of uh, <laughs> his delivery and his intellect. And age is not were... dulling it. <laughs> no, no. You were left <laughs> thinking about what he said as it slowly slapped you across the face. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Another podcast I really would like to do in all the research that I have done in this is actually about Curtin. Yeah. He, he's, he, he's sort of, you know, like World War II and, and all of the, you know, the conflicts Australia has been involved in. He seems to sort of just hasn't been that, that we reference him so, you know, much, think, oh, he did this and he did this and, oh, if it wasn't for this and... He seems to have sort of flown under the radar a little bit, but I was just going to I, I say think, he flies under the radar that one. Yeah, and so I'd like to sort of perhaps you know do a little bit more research on him to find out what sort of man he was and what he actually did and yeah, it's quite interesting actually. Sounds good. You going to mm. leave that one? Sure. Sure. Okay. <laughs> That's 2023, dear listener. Yeah. Yeah. Keep watching. <laughs> Um, um, so we are recording this podcast on the 20th of November 2022. Okay. So it seems fitting that uh, we remember Sir John McEwen, who was the 18th Prime Minister. He passed away on the 20th of November 1980 and he was the caretaker Prime Minister after Harold Holt disappeared whilst swimming. Dear listener, if you're not in Australia, you won't know about Harold Holt. He was a Prime Minister in the 1960s and he was famous. He loved going swimming. He was a real, oh, he was a real character. And he went swimming this day out at Portsea in Victoria and went missing. 
and has never been found. And there's all kinds of theories about what happened to Harold Holt from sharks got him to there was a submarine waiting offshore. Yeah, and was it a Japanese sub or Russian Chinese sub? Or or Russian sub or some <laughs> kind of thing. Um, yeah, and he went missing. And the way that Harold Holt has been commemorated, bearing in mind this is a man who was swimming and got lost at sea, is they have named a swimming pool after him. I mean, it's, it's only in gold. Australia, huh? Only it's in Australia. Like, when I first heard that, I, I thought someone was literally taking the piss and then I was like, oh, no, it actually exists. Oh, yeah. Who thought of that? I know. That's it's, hilarious. It is gold. He's he's yeah. worthy of a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yes, <laughs> I know. Yeah, well, don't, don't we all say, oh, you did the Harold Holt? Yeah, I mean, and it's, it is it is slang, dear listener. You did a Harold Holt. You disappeared. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, so, look, yeah. We've had some real characters as prime ministers and and it's funny, we're talking about Harold Holt and I've got this feeling of energy and, you know, we're having a laugh. We talk about Paul Keating and we, we can remember the insults and the energy that... Of, of the vitriol that went, she's again using Paul Keating to make fun of me. Um, <laughs> we can remember the energy of Bob Hawke. What do we remember about Ben Shifley? I remember calm. Oh, oh I don't remember anything. I wasn't alive, but <laughs> exactly I have a how feeling old of are you, princess. <laughs> I've got this feeling of calm. It's like this calm, dependable feeling about him. It's funny. I think this quote about Ben Shifley sums up to me why he is a great man. Every morning he did the rounds of the office and spoke to everybody, asking younger members of staff if they went out or saw their boyfriends the previous night. He was very outgoing and there was a real interest in each person on his staff. This tells me that Ben Shifley was a man genuinely interested in other people, a man who cared for others. He could have come into the office each day and blown past his employees, only speaking to them when he wanted them to do something or needed their assistance, but he didn't. In my humble opinion, Ben Shifley and his government helped set up Australia to be the tremendous society that it became. He helped develop the welfare provisions that so many have relied on and benefited from. He helped the CSIRO become the groundbreaking organisation that has given the world such things as softly washing liquid, the first wool wash that didn't ruin the wool, plastic banknotes and the Hendra virus vaccine. He helped higher education by establishing the university's commission in the ANU. He helped car manufacturing in Australia get underway and he helped get the Snowy Mountain Scheme going, which not only provided water to farmland west of the Great Dividing Range, but also changed Australian society. On the evening of Ben Shifley's passing, dear listener, Sir Robert Menzies, whilst at the 50th anniversary of Federation Parliamentary Ball, announced... It is my very sorrowful duty during this celebration tonight to tell you that Mr Chifley has died. I don't want to try to talk about him now because, although we were political opponents, he was a friend of mine and yours and a find of Australian. You will all agree that in the circumstances of the festivities should end. It doesn't matter about party politics on an occasion such as this. Oddly enough, in Parliament we get on very well. We sometimes find that we have the warmest friendships among people whose politics are not ours. Mr Chifley served this country magnificently for years. I think that sums up Ben Chifley brilliantly. 
If you would like to contribute to our discussion of Ben Chifley, dear listener, or you may have an idea for a podcast episode, you may want to make contact with one of our podcasters and you can do so on Facebook at at podnoname or via email at podnoname at gmail.com. Thank you, dear Captain, for this morning's discussion. I've just loved it. And thank you. It's been really interesting, hasn't it? It has. Thank you, Captain, for joining in today and making me sound intelligent. And thank you, dear listener, for listening to us. Until next time, take care. And then we can, I don't know, we'll just keep it, as Todd says, loosey-goosey. Yeah, 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 the boy said something Um, about Ed Devereaux. Yeah, where is it? It's not even listed on his page. Anyway, it was quite interesting. It was filmed in black and white. True True Believers, it's called. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it was filmed in black and white, even though it was done in 1988. And it was actually very good, but I fell asleep because I started it at like 10 o'clock. It was almost like a a play. Yeah. It could have been a stage play. Yeah, I really enjoyed it and it's just... It's really good, really good. Yeah, yeah, no, the boys said something about it, but we were all excited about Ed Devereaux rather than Ben Chifley. Yes, that's right. I know, because I was like, who is this guy? Who is this guy? And then I was like, ah, of course, like, because obviously he is an older man, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to show you something else. Yeah. This is just a photocopy. Can you see that? Australian they're my grandfather's Shearer's tickets. Oh, wow. Look at that. Yeah, Shearer's ticket. So 1897, 1899, and 1899 to 1900. Wow. What's the name? Worthy, Mr. Worthy. Worthy. Yeah. So that is so cool. Yeah. So um, this is my grandfather on my mother's side. Yeah. My grandmother that I was talking about before is on my dad's side. So my grandfather owned a sheep farm just outside of Yass, a little place called Wee Jasper. Yep. And and only after all of the, you know, internet searches and all of that stuff now because everything's been archived and, and put on the internet, that pretty much for a majority of the 1920s he had the what they called the best clip which was the mm. finest wool, mm. um, which was, you know, down at Piermont, like on whatever street, Waddle Street or ha- Harris mm. Street or one of the, you know, the big, yeah, yeah. isn't that amazing? That is yeah. so cool. That yeah, and so, so cool. this is where, um, this was just before he was married to my grandmother. So he was a, he was a young man going around and, um, yeah, amazing, isn't it? Mm. That is so cool. Yeah. So, you know, and before Federation. Yeah. Have you gone trawling through Trove for relatives? Oh, it's just. What a time waster that is. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. But do you know what I bloody do? <laughs> and I've got one of the guys at work on to it, is you Google your address or your suburb and then you put in murder Ooh. afterwards. And so, of course, you know, 
one of the guys lives in Erskineville. And so I was like, you know, put in your address and then murder. Oh, you were in a bloody wormhole for <laughs> days on that one. Oh. And it gives you everything. It's incredible. So good. So good. Oh. Yeah. That's a podcast. My granddad and great-grandfather were policemen and my great-grandfather was shot in 1930, so around wow. the time of all the razor gangs. Yeah. He, he survived. Where? He was shot yeah. at Vaucluse, which in those days was yeah, just a well, suburb. Yeah. So there's a podcast that I've been listening to. Yeah. And it's called, I can't remember the name of it, but I'll, I'll send it to you if you're interested. Yeah. And it's done, it's done by the State Library of Australia. And basically it's about, did you know, and I'm sure you do, that there used to be a, like where Central Station is, used to be the cemetery, cemetery for Sydney. Yeah. yeah. So this is the podcast sort of about all of that. And it talks Ooh. about, you know, Sydney at the time and, and all the different people. It's really, really good. And unfortunately, of course, this coincided with the exhibition that the State Library did. But, of course, it was in like 2018 or 19 or something. So the exhibition isn't there anymore. But it was just so interesting. I loved it. That'd be so cool. Well, because it uh, talks about old old Sydney. It's crazy, isn't it? Like Australia's not very old, but it just sort of just grew so quickly, and you still have all this incredible stuff going on. I love yeah. it. I yeah. love it so much. I mean, part of the reason yeah. why I love living out here. I mean, well, I mean out near Campbelltown. I mean, it's 200 years old. The Appen Massacre yeah. happened 207 years yeah. ago now. It's, it's, yeah. it's just there's so much out here. Um, mm. Elizabeth mm. MacArthur, she's one of my heroes. The woman's a oh, God. saint. Yeah. John MacArthur yeah. didn't get the sheep industry going. Elizabeth did because John was too off playing, yeah, busy going off playing politics and being mad. Yes. Elizabeth yeah. did it. Yeah. This is how old I am. Fool's cap folders. 